I invite you to open up to Galatians chapter 3. That's where we'll be in the scriptures this morning. As you turn there, I want to take you back to the schoolyard and think about what it was that you said when you were a kid to strengthen a promise. So if you told a kid that you promised you were going to do something or you promised that something was true, what was it that you said to kind of strengthen that? So here's a couple. Sometimes it's this. I swear on my someone's life. And usually mom got thrown under the bus right there. I'm not sure why that is, but you know, kids swearing on their mother's life, like that strengthens it. I'm really telling the truth, right? Uh, sometimes with siblings, we would do this. Uh, if I'm lying, then you can blank, you know, eat my dessert for a month or whatever. It would be some dastardly thing to me. And the other sibling is supposed to go, hmm, he's probably telling the truth because he wouldn't want that to happen. And then some of you mentioned this one, right? Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. I mean, what are we teaching our kids? That's disgusting. You know, but, but that is to say, man, let that happen to me if what I'm saying is not true. Now, here's my question. What do you do to strengthen your promises now? We still tend to do these things. They may not sound quite so childish, and we don't add those phrases to them. But we will still often take what we say and then strengthen it with some following words. A follow-up question that you can maybe discuss privately or in a family or with a spouse or something is this. What does it say about our word that it needs strengthening? The simple scriptural mandate is this. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And if you have a track record that says that all the time, you would never need to strengthen a promise, never need to strengthen a word. Now, we live in a day and an age where both making and then breaking promises is absolutely rampant. It's everywhere. I heard someone spouting off about politics today and saying, well, of course politicians lie. It's to what degree are we willing to put up with that? And he was just stating it as, as commonly as, this, as if, of course, that's part of the process. But we do. We see it in politics. We see it in jobs. We see it in marriage. Yesterday, Fox News reported that a Georgia man had to pay $50,000 to his one-time fiance because he broke a promise not to marry her. And I thought, wow, what if we attached monetary damages to be paid to our promises that were broken? How might that change whether we make a vow or not, whether we promise something or not? So it just shows the, the way that we think this through in today's day and age is pretty warped. It's pretty broken. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about a promise that God made. We just sang this. His promise is true. And here we are, a congregation gathered together on a Sunday morning to worship God and to say, God, your promise is true. Now, we're in this book of Galatians, and Paul is framing the discussion in these terms, okay? What does the promise that was made to Abraham have to do with the law that was given to Moses some 400 plus years later? And he's doing this because these Judaizers that are kind of one of the central characters in the book of Galatians are taking these two and pitting them against one another. And they're taking the relationship and they're kind of, they're, they're, they're misrepresenting it. And so Paul's going to go after that. Now I'll just confess to you that this week, I have wrestled with this passage more this week 
than a lot of passages. And, and one of the challenges that I would say to you, so you can kind of feel my pain a little bit, later on today, I want you to read Galatians chapter 3. And if you were to break that up into segments, knowing that you couldn't cover all of it in a sermon, how would you break it up and where would you break it up? Now, I know most of you won't go home and do that. Football is a lot more intriguing than that. But I'm just letting you know that's my pain. It's like, where do we break this up? Because Paul has this kind of flow of thought. And sometimes the numbers in our Bible cause us not to be able to read the text well. We, we think that things end after chapter 3 and pick up something new in chapter 4. Paul never wrote it with the numbers, okay? The numbers came centuries later to kind of help us find our place, kind of like numbers on your house, to find a reference. But as you read just Galatians 3 and then moving on into 4, um, I would challenge you, go and try to figure out where should we break this. So here's part of the breakthrough I had this week, is that I'm going to take a sermon... And I'm going to break it in probably to three parts. So you're getting part one today rather than to try to preach the whole thing to you right now. Okay. And over the next couple of weeks, I am going to say that I'm going to cover a certain number of verses, but I may not. I'll just give you that warning. Okay. So for those of you who like to checklist, don't even email me. I know. I know I didn't get to write where I thought I was part of the challenge. Um, here's what I want you to do. All of you are theologians. Whether you know it or not, you're a theologian this morning. And and it's just a question of whether you're, you're an astute theologian or not, whether you're a careful theologian or not, whether you're an advanced theologian who's been thinking and studying God for a long time, or whether you're a brand newbie who's just learning this stuff and just looking into some of these ideas. How many of you in this room feel like a trained expert in eating artichokes? Anyone? Okay. A couple of you. A couple of you. That surprised me. I'll just be, I'll just keep it real. That surprised me a little bit. But here's the truth. Probably many of you in this room are relative experts at eating artichokes, especially when you are sitting next to someone who's never eaten an artichoke. Have you ever served an artichoke to someone who's never had one before? Let me see that in. Okay, we had some people over from the Midwest. They were new to the church. We had them over, and we thought we'd serve them artichokes just because we love artichokes. We eat them all the time. And we, we saw them sitting with this artichoke on their plate. They just had no idea how to do it, you know? And uh, secretly, I was like, I wonder how long I can hold off. Like, maybe they'll just bite into it or something. <laughs> but, but we taught them how to do it, you know? There really is an art to eating artichokes. Even though you don't feel like a trained expert, sitting next to the person who doesn't know how to eat an artichoke, you, you, you really know more than, than you think. Now, what does artichokes have to do with church? Here we go. So it is with reading the Bible. Some of you... Are, are advanced theologians when it comes to, to, to reading the Bible because you've just been doing some things for a really long time. And, and without even thinking about it, your brain is trained to kind, of, to kind of think through a text in a different way than someone just opening the Bible for, for the very first time. Some of you are brand new Christians, and you've never read the Bible except on Sundays when someone else read it to you. And so for you, you're opening this book going, wow, I've got a lot to learn about artichokes, about God's word, right? There's kind of an art to, to all of this. And if we're reading the Bible to really understand it, to really let it impact us, think about the artichoke, to really let the nourishment get in. We did a series earlier this year called Eat to Live. It's not just, it's not just skimming past some words, checking off that I read a chapter today, chapter a day keeps the devil away, I guess I'm good. But rather say, God... God, you've put this here. You've kept this here. What is it you have for me? One of the biggest breakthroughs in my life spiritually was when I began to read the Bible and firsthand God spoke to me from his word. Many of you in this room can just go, yeah, that was a massive breakthrough for me as well. So I bring this up 
Because as you read the Bible, um, some of you are noticing when you read a passage of Scripture that when there are there are key words in there, you should probably stop and study that word and figure out what does that word mean. This is being translated from a different language and being used in a different era than it is today. And so maybe there's some legwork I need to do to kind of figure out what's really being understood. Well, if a, if a word is repeated then you would probably begin to figure out maybe that's one of the key words that I should study, right? But if a word is repeated nine times, then perhaps it's a, it's a word that you really should understand. In Galatians chapter 3, what we see is the, the word Abraham, the name Abraham, used nine times, okay? Dipping a little bit into, into chapter 4. Abraham is probably a pretty key figure to understand why is Paul bringing up Abraham, this historical figure then, and a really far historical figure today. Maybe we should learn something about him so we know what Paul is driving at. Here's the second word, the word promise. The word promise in this passage is used nine times as well. So once again, when you see the word promise, and you see it in the context of Galatians, you say, well, what can I do to get into what he's talking about so that I don't impose what I think promise means and kind of bring that to the table? So, so, so do you see how when we think about promise and what I opened with, this rampant making and breaking of promises, and when we bring a politician's promise or a broken marriage vow or something else to the table, we can actually skew it just by our modern thinking. I want to take you back to a series that we did before Galatians. We called it Step of Yes. And up until last week, along this wall, uh, we allowed our children of our church to provide the artwork for the title each week. And this was Sadie, um, who, who drew a picture of God's invitation to Abraham. And he's calling out to him, Abram, here in this picture. And in the Step of Yes series, what we saw was God inviting people into partnership with him. And Abraham's invitation was to be blessed so that he can be a blessing. Remember that? And you can read all about this promise given to Abraham all through the book of of Genesis. God promised him land and a large family. When you talk about blessing, what he was talking about primarily was this. You're going to have a large family, and you're going to have a land. Okay, Massive things to Abraham. God actually said that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Hebrews looks back on that moment and says this in in Hebrews 11.11. It was by faith that even Sarah was able to have a child, though she was barren and too old. So a miracle took place for this to go on. She believed that God would keep his promise. And so... A whole nation came from this one uh, man who was as good as dead. That's talking about Abraham. A nation with so many people that like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, there was no way to count them. The promise and Abraham would forever be linked in the minds of Paul's listeners. Paul's writing to this group of Galatians who are now living centuries after that promise was made, but in their minds... Abraham and the promise. The promise and Abraham. Those two go hand in hand as a massive event in the life 
of a Jew. Father Abraham wasn't just the father of a nation, but he was the father of faith. And he believed that God would keep his promise. Okay, So as you're looking through a Bible text, we see Abraham is really prominent. We see the word promise is really prominent. So we need to go back and look at what is that talking about. Okay, Now, let's pull back for a moment from chapter 3 of Galatians and say, what is Galatians about? Okay, I just want to keep reviewing this because it's important. We're calling this series Right from God. In this series, Paul is contrasting a man-made righteousness, a man-made path to God that leads to righteousness, and he's comparing and contrasting that with the God-ordained, the God way of becoming righteous. Okay, And that's what he's constantly doing in this. And, and I summed up the whole letter by saying this, right from God, as in we are made right from God. It's gifted to us. God is always the giver in our relationship. Amen? We are always the receiver in this relationship. Amen? Now, here's what's great about that. The people of God wear a giant smile on our face. Because what we know is this. There's nothing we could bring to the table to kind of add to God. And yet he loves us. We're the constant recipients from a good and generous and giving God. And yet, as we saw all through the Step of Yes series, God continues to invite us in anyways. Not because he needs us, but because he loves us. Because he gives us a purpose and he gives us ways to come and partner with him. All right, so now, that's Galatians. Now, zooming into our passage today, Paul is discussing the relationship between the promise and the law because the promises of God were under attack, okay? I want to read this passage in a different order. We're not just going to go starting in verse 15 and start reading down. I want to get to the point of Paul's message and then go back and look at the whole. Look at verse 17. Galatians 3, 17 is Paul's main point in what he's talking about. And the point is this, that God's promise holds despite the law. He says, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward, he's talking about from the promise, does not annul or make void a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Now, I know there's a lot of you in this room that love to read, but if I were to add, do you love to read law books, your hand would shoot back down really quickly, right? Because you're thinking, man, law and all of that stuff's just too technical. I don't like any of that stuff. We're in a law book type section. And this is just a little bit more of a technical passage in the book of Galatians. Um, but here's, here's how I'd kind of boil this down. Our hope is in a promise, so rest in it. Our hope as believers today is in a promise, so rest in that truth. Now, Paul's going to do what teachers and preachers do often, and that is he's going to illustrate this main point in verse 17. Okay, Keep 17 in mind, lest you get off on the illustration. Right? And thinking that it's talking about the illustration. It's not. The illustration is only shining light back on this main point of verse 17, which says this. The law that came later doesn't make void the promise that was given by God. Okay? That's what he's driving home. Here's how he illustrates it. He illustrates this by way of a contemporary idea, something that was familiar to everyday life. And the brilliance of this illustration is it actually hit Jews and Gentiles together. Okay? What he was going to talk about was was um, was wills, contracts made between two parties, something that 
went on every day in commerce and, the, and that they would have gotten. All right, so picking up in verse 15, all of that is kind of introduction so you can catch the flow of 15 to 18. All right, here's verse 15 of Galatians 3. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Here was the objection being thrown out. The objection being thrown out by the Judaizers was simply this. The law supersedes the promise. The promise was given, but later on the law came, and that became more important than the promise. So what Paul's now doing is he's beginning to expose the poor logic of that. And so he, so he uses this, this illustration. The opponents of the promise were changing the will. I want you to suppose for a moment that a will was made granting two children the entire estate of their parents. Child number one receives little because she is rich. Child number two receives most of it because she's poor and in poor health. The day before the parents die unexpectedly, child one, who was to receive very little because she's rich, comes upon financial ruin. She can't, child one, come in now and change the will, even though circumstances and events have changed. Do you see that to be true? So what Paul's doing is this. He's saying, we know this to be commonly true. That person can't come in and change the will. They're not in authority to do so. So he's, he's using this illustration to drive home this well-known point. So what is this promise that he's talking about? It's those made to Abraham. The immediate and literal fulfillment of that, of course, was that God gave Abraham a literal son, right? So he had a child, and that, that began this process of these descendants that were going to be as numerous as the stars and as many as the pieces of sand on the beach. He also was going to give him a land. In fact, the land that they were now standing on was the result of that. But there was so much more. If you go back to Genesis, what you see is that God says this to Abraham. All the families on the entire earth are going to be blessed because of you. All the families of the entire earth are going to get in on this inheritance. So what had to be true is this. While there was a literal immediate fulfillment of an actual male son being born and an actual inheritance of land being cleared out, namely Israel, there was actually something far bigger going on. God's bigger picture is that this blessing would be eternal and that it would grow into something that was spiritual. Like a will, the inheritance would come through a lineage. Christ is from Abraham's seed. Paul goes to this point of saying it's not to your offsprings that this was given, but to one, namely Christ. That's what verse 16 is kind of calling out specifically. The blessing comes through the one, Jesus Christ. Now, we haven't gotten there, but look down to verse 22 for a moment. Verse 22 says this. 
But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Do you see how, although this promise was given to a very specific uh, person in a very specific place, that God's intent all along has been to be something far bigger? Because it's through Jesus Christ, and now it's opened up the promises to all of those who believe in Jesus Christ. Now, take a little breath. That was a lot to cover, okay? Um, here's, what I, here's what I want to drive home for you right now. This is a great truth to rest in. The fact that the blessing, the fact that the inheritance comes through the promise and not through the law. We've seen week after week after week already with Paul, and we're going to continue here, and that it's not from human effort of keeping and maintaining law is a massive thing to rest in for us. I mean, think about what this, what the implications are. God's promise is sure, and God's promise is for us. A couple thousand years later. Remember Paul's mission field? He kind of covers this in chapters 1 and 2. His mission field, listen, is the whole world. He's concerned that, that, that everyone know that non-Jews, that would be Gentiles, get in on this blessing. That's who God called him to. He called him to go to the non-Jewish world and say, hey, you guys are in on this too. He was passionate about this. His message, the message of the gospel is this, no strings attached. No merit to somehow achieve and then somehow maintain through the course of our life. No legal documents to read. That's awesome, right? Scouring the fine print, looking for the catch. There is no catch. It's this promise that's been given. And again, that's the joy of the gospel. That really is what we, what we celebrate. So Paul now is going to further establish the relationship between law and promise by, by basically answering two questions. Okay, Here's the two questions. Why the law then? What is the purpose of the law? And then the second question would be this. Is the law against the promise? If God is the author of both the promise that went to Abraham and is the author of the law that went to Moses, is he confused? Are they at odds with one another? So Paul's, Paul's going to, to go and ask this. Now, once again, we don't know if these were actual objections or if this is Paul preempting where he thinks people are going to go with this argument. Okay. So let's take question one. Look at verses 19 and 20, and uh, let, me just, let me just read those. It says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So he's preempting this objection that people might have. Are you going to now diss Moses? What about the law? Like, why was that even in place then if all this blessing comes through the promise? Now, think about just for a moment, if, if, if you're in... If you're invested in a system that says you keep the law so that you're in right with God, 
and you're actually in the business of maintaining that people are understanding and keeping the law so that they are right with God, do you see how threatening it would be to come along and say, you've got it all wrong, none of that is necessary, that's not the way that we're in right with God? Does that, does that track with you, right? That's really threatening. Because that starts to force this question. Well, that would mean that I've wasted my life. That would mean that all of this advancement and achievement and nitpicking and finding needles in a haystack would, would, would be for naught. So the people who have invested a lot in this have kind of a lot to lose with this. And sometimes the more we invest in something, it's even the less clear that we can see objectively about something. Because as we heard from the passage earlier this morning, these traditions that have passed on, then it begs this question, well, does that mean dad was wrong and grandpa was wrong and great-grandpa was wrong? You're, you're dissing my whole family that we've been wrong in this. So it's very, very threatening to come along and say this. All right, let's go back to paying attention for a moment. As long as we are counting key words, how about this key word? Any guesses of how many times this shows up? Don't look at your Bible. Not nine, but 25. Okay, starting in this passage, in, in verse, in verse 314, uh, and, and moving on, you have it showing up 25 times. Because Paul is writing this letter to free Christians from the bondage that these legal legals were kind of like leading people into, he's very keyed in on the word law. Very keyed in on it. Once again, we kind of need to do some groundwork then to think, well, what's that talking about? What, what would that mean to someone in the region of Galatia hearing this letter read in their church from Pastor Paul. If you go back to the Old Testament and study it and look at it and kind of follow the flow of history and what went on, you have the Torah which was given. These were the laws of God. And if you want a summary for that, you would look to the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments were given to Moses. But even just kind of a cursory reading of the Old Testament, it would show you there was a lot more than Ten Commandments. There's a lot of commandments in there. Some are prohibitive, don't do this, and some are do this festival, do Sabbath, do these different things. And so this was God giving kind of the totality of the law. Here's where the problems came. The problems came when the leaders of the spiritual life in the community began to add laws and probably inadvertently change the laws as they went along. Um, there's something called fence laws, and a fence law would be something like this. If you were to not work on the Sabbath, okay, that's the law. That's the line that was being given to draw, to, to, to draw and say, don't, don't get near that line. What offense law was this? The law given from God is don't work on the Sabbath. Offense law would be to say, well, what's work and what would keep people from even getting up close to that line? We want to protect people from that, from that electric fence of crossing and breaking God's law. So let's not even let them, um, walk anywhere. Let's not let them, you know, um, uh, go, go to market. Let's not let them. And so what would happen is there would be laws put in place that would, that would be added to that to say, let's make sure that they don't get anywhere near breaking that law. Do you see how that's adding to the laws of God? Now, before you judge the Pharisees too quick, before you judge the religious leaders uh, throughout Israel's history, parents, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have it as a fundamental law not to play in the street? Anyone have that one? Okay, you guys are weird. They're <laughs> like, no, we we love the kids playing in the street. Um, 
Actually, I used to, but it depends on your street, I guess, right? We have a law. You can't play in the street. The way a fence law would work for parents is this, is to say, well, I don't want them even accidentally playing in the street, so we're not going to let our kids play in the front yard at all, right? And then, um, as I see my kids playing in the backyard, I realize there's a fence that could go out, out there. I go, well, playing outside is inherently dangerous, so we won't really even let them play outside at all. What's this being motivated from so far? Fear, but also love and concern for the kid, right? I would say an equal, kind of equal parts of those. Here's where it gets wacky. I go, well, the kids are playing inside, and they love it, but I know that what's going to happen is they're going to be playing, and they're going to think of how fun this would be to do this outside, so let's keep our kids from playing altogether. So a new rule is in place over time that says, all right, kids, no more playing at all. Well, why? Ultimately, it's because I don't want you playing in the street, but I'm crazy, and so I'm working my way back, right? <laughs> now, not only is there no more playing, but... But if you see each other and you look at each other, you might get the idea of playing. So we're going to put each of you in a separate closet by yourself, right? Now, those kinds of parents should be locked up in jail, right? That's cruel. That, that's an evil way to parent a child. And what started off as kind of a fence law as a, as a protection, saying, I don't want you to get anywhere near it, turns into something far different. This is, in essence, what had gone on with the Torah, with these laws that had been given had been given, and they were just added to one upon the other. You know who started all of this? It was Adam. If you go back and read about Adam and Eve, um, God says that you shouldn't eat of the fruit. You see when he talks to Eve, remember what he says to Eve? He says, God said you shouldn't eat or even touch it. God didn't say anything about touching it. You see that? It's a fence law. So right away, it's just that human nature in us, that fallen nature that, that starts to skew. And so now we're saying, thus saith the Lord, and God's like, I didn't say that. That actually wasn't it at all. So what you have now, um, hundreds of years later, generations of years later, are fence laws and these things that have gotten really wacky. And in essence, you're taking people, kids, and putting them in closets all by themselves and locking them up. Here's what's worse. It's in the name of God. This is the way God wants it. No playing. No being near each other where you'd be tempted to play. If you read the Gospels, where you're reading about the life of Jesus, do you know the one group that Jesus was far and away the most in opposition to? It was the Pharisees. As a group of people, you would look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, religious leaders, those who should have been the good guys in the story. They should have welcomed Messiah and said, we're on your team, put us to work. We're your green berets, man. We'll, we'll go do this. We've invested our life in this. He has all kinds of scathing words for this group of people, but one of the things he says is this. Their brand of righteousness, the religion that they're pushing and peddling, equates to like yeast that infects the whole dough. So he was very adamant against that kind of law-keeping, man-made righteousness. All right. So why the law then? Uh, look at verse 19. He answers it pretty plainly. He says this. It was added because of transgressions. Well, what does that mean? The answer is simply it was added because of trans transgressions. In essence, it's to reveal sin. 
What we've noticed with Galatians is that Paul wrote a whole bunch more in Romans, and sometimes Galatians illuminates Romans, and Romans illuminates Galatians. But if, if you don't have to turn there, we can write these passages down. These would be good to kind of further dig into this. Let me just read a couple of passages from Romans where he's talking about this very thing about the law and the nature of why is that in place. In Romans 3.20, he says this, Through the law comes knowledge of sin. In, in Romans 7.7, 7, he says, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. So what the law does is it takes wrongdoing and sin and it puts a name to it and a category to it and, and makes it a, a, um, a transgression when you commit that. Romans 5.13 says this, Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. So it wasn't like the law came and all of a sudden people started sinning. It's just that the law came, God ushered that in at just the right moment in history to begin showing people categorically lawbreaker, rule breaker. You don't measure up here. And it, it basically reveals sin. Law puts people on the path of salvation both by showing their need for it and by now being legally responsible as lawbreakers. Now, I'm going to take a little uh, short deviation here. The rest of verses 19 and 20, I'll just let you go figure out the nuances to what it's talking about. Here's my one-sentence summary from the different commentators I read in the study on it. It's not a major thrust of the passage, but, but here's basically what he's talking about with this intermediary. What is that all about? And that God is one. And where is he? Where is Paul going? Why, why this little excursion over here? Here, here's it kind of in a nutshell. I believe that Paul is pointing out that the law being given is inferior to the promise because it went through a mediator. So he's just saying to those who would elevate law over promise and try to pit those against each other, he says, if you want to know, actually, I think the law is actually inferior in that it went through someone, namely Moses, to be given, whereas God spoke the promise directly to Abraham. You can go study it for yourself and let me know where I'm going wrong on that. All right, number two, the second question is this. Um, is the law against the promise? Verses 21 to 22. Let me just read those. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? You see, I'm not making these questions up. These are just right out of the scripture, right? Why the law? Is the promise against, uh, against the law? Certainly not, he says. This is that same phrase he used earlier in the book. It's meganoita. It's the strongest possible. If some of you guys have translations that say, God forbid... That's, that's not at all it, is what he's saying. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by law, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Here's his answer to it. He says, if the law could bring life, it would have, but it can't. Therefore, both the law and the promise are essential and necessary, and so God, the creator of both of them, knew this and gives it to them. When it says that the, the, the law imprisons everyone, what's that talking about? If you go back to the Old Testament, what you see, Old Testament and New Testament are in total agreement that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not one righteous who walks on the earth. Therefore, uh, everyone is, is under that, so to speak. 
reveals that all of us are dead in, in a dead end and need of rescue. And then he points to this time that was coming where there was this child of promise that was going to come and give us the way out. Paul is showing that the gospel was preached to Abraham. I wasn't, I wasn't really aware of this growing up. In all the teaching and preaching I got, I, I wasn't really aware of this. And, and as I began to study the, the word of God, it wasn't that it wasn't preached necessarily. I wasn't picking up on it. But, but as I began to, to, to understand this and understand that the gospel was preached way back here to Abraham, and that God has been working through this entire book and how it all fits together, it explodes in this God-exalting view of saying, wow, God, you are really sovereign. This book really is remarkable. The gospel is all the way back in Genesis being preached to the father of faith, Abraham. It never was about works for him. And here it is, that same message being taught and defended here in Galatians. What's left to do with all this but to rest? I close with this. The, the promise that I've been talking about thus far, because the passage is talking about it, has to do with this, this, this like capital P promise. This blessing of being in the family through the lineage of Jesus Christ, being born again into that, and that we get all this inheritance. That's kind of like a capital P promise. But then there are all these offshoot promises that we read about in Scripture. And I'll confess to you that this week, I was tested in my trust of one of those other kinds of promises. Here's one of the promises that God gives to us because he's a good dad. And he's letting us know some things. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, that's either true or it's not true, right? That's being promised by God that all of it is profitable or it's not true. Here's where I wrestled with this. I wrestled with this thought on two fronts. The first is this. This passage is difficult to understand. Paul is a brilliant intellect, and I'm kind of like the fisherman Peter who says at one point in the scriptures, hey, Paul, he's kind of hard to understand. So I feel like I'm in good company that one of the capital A apostles has a hard time understanding Paul. So I really wrestled with that this week. But secondly, I get about 45 minutes with most of you each week to basically let your soul feast on the word of God. And my, my prayer and my longing each week is, God, I don't want to prepare what I want to give to them. Would you somehow use me as a chef to kind of cook up what they need from your word? But as a deliverer of the message, I really do long for it to be both nourishing and tasty. You can have, you can have one or the other sometimes, and it's not as good as having both of those together. Here's the temptation with a passage like this this morning. The temptation is to spiritualize what's going on and draw out some nugget from what we've just been talking about and kind of give you something that's a lot more feel-good and strokes a lot more of where your needs are right now, and you walk away going, great message, Pastor. I feel so encouraged. All the while, I knowing I wasn't faithful to the text. All knowing that what I didn't do was I didn't preach through Galatians like we say that we're doing. 
So here's what happened. This week, as I'm on my knees praying, God, what do you want said from the front? I actually asked our men's group this week. I said, guys, God's holding out on me. I'm still wrestling with the Lord on this. It's Thursday night. That's not good for my timing. I like to be planning ahead. God kept faithfully and gently nudging me back to the text. Here's what he said. All scripture is profitable. You give him what Galatians says. My comeback, God, what is law and promise and these technicalities have to do with people who are hurting and struggling and wrestling in relationship and finding joy in the newborn baby that they just had and all these different things of life? Here's what he said. Rest in my promise. My words are enough. So by faith, I just gave you this passage in Galatians, a little part of it. Remember, there's only part one. I just gave you Galatians. But that's, that's a practical outworking of me just recognizing, oh, yeah, it's not really up to me to come up with something tasty and nourishing. You've already got it. It's right here, God. So there it is given to you. I'm brought to the application part of this morning, and this is going to go pretty quick. Here's the takeaway. What do I do with this? Help us a little bit, Dave. All you've told us so far is to go study more and count words. Here it is. Number one is to go find a really, really thick law book and start to read it as if your very life depended on it. You'll probably have to go to a library for this because I don't own any of these. But you just start reading that puppy. Okay, that's step number one. Here's step number two. Stop reading the book. Okay? Stop reading the book and then thank God that your life doesn't depend on understanding law. And keeping all of that law. And right there in the library, man, you start to sing or you start to hum or you can get down on your knees and pray. You do whatever it is. You do it until the security drags you out of the library, okay? Stop and have a worship service right there in the library. We won't tend to truly rest until we truly trust. This is true of a hammock. If you think a hammock isn't trustworthy, you're not going to really rest in it. But if you trust it, man, you're just going to rest in that. It's true of people, and it's true of God. You won't really rest in God unless you know that he's trustworthy. A passage like this, we sang about this, it's so brilliant, is that God is unchanging. He gave the promise here. 400 years later, he gave the law here. And here it is some 2,000 years later and more that we're talking about looking back on this event of Christ and seeing how God is unchanging in all of that. And while I'll be the first in line to say, I don't really get it all, I look at that and it highlights the trustworthiness of God's promise. It highlights the immutability of God, that characteristic that says God doesn't change. And you can rest in that. Step number three is to rest in God's promises. A practical outworking of this might be this. Wednesdays in December, we are gathering in this room at 7 o'clock. We're going for one hour. And it's an expression. It's, it's the ability to come and collectively just signify, God, we are resting in you. The work that has to be done this Christmas season is your work. It's a spiritual work. We don't have the power by cleverness 
or by decoration, which looks great in here. Thank you, team, that came in and did that. Or by great program or by spot-on music or super good preaching to change a single mind or heart. That's your work. So, God, we rest in that. And if you can't join us physically, I get it. Some of you can't be here. Join us in the activity. Maybe you as a family would carve out one hour or a segment of time on Wednesday nights to just say, church, we're with you in spirit in this. We're going to be on our knees for our neighborhood. We're going to be doing these other things in addition, but our rest is in that. And with every sigh that comes from an hour of prayer, just recognizing, God, you're always the giver, and yet you include us in this, let those just be sighs of praise. Let those, let those just kind of ring out these deep, soul-cleansing sighs. That's a worship song right there when we get it that way. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for hard passages that I personally would not seek out to teach. I thank you, God, that as we read through the scriptures, there's so much that we have yet to understand. A God formed in our own image, we would get to understand every nuance of it, but we recognize that your ways are higher than ours. And like a child who can't always understand the logic or the actions or the timing of their parents, so we are with you, God. And so we just long to rest in you. We long to believe what you promised. We see from scriptures that Abraham and Sarah, they lived their life as if they really believed the promise. There were, there were tangible outworkings of that. God, let it be said of us that, that we rest in and we believe that what you have promised is true to us. God, I thank you for this congregation that you have grown up here in this neighborhood. This morning, God, we, um, we just turn our eyes outwards and we think about um, people who are the, the mice on the wheel from last week. God, we look at them with huge amounts of compassion because so many of us can identify with what it was like to churn year after year, day after day, working harder and harder and getting a deeper sense that we are falling behind. God, I pray that you would burden hearts and minds in this very room with specific names and people who need to hear this message, God. Pray that we'd be obedient and joyful in our response to that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.